We're still in Judges. Uh, can I continue to, in, can I encourage you to keep on reading it? Can I encourage you to read ahead and uh, look through it? It's, if you want to, if you're a parent and you're looking for some light reading to get your kids off to sleep, this is not, this is not the book for them. But if you want to, I don't know if you want to keep them up into the small, <laughs> small hours and torture them, this is what you want to do. So we, we've got a big chapter, chapter nine, and we, we didn't read it all out. So the last little bit I'm going to condense, sort of explain uh, the story of, but it's just, they're great stories. And as Paul said in his intro, they reveal, I think, something of the sharp violence that is the gospel message, something that we have got to study and got to get our heads around. It is, I think, a human ideal for us to live full lives. We have this innate good desire to make the most of our time here on earth, don't we? We, we kind of long for it, and we kind of want to be liberated and freed up to do that. It's one of our kind of complaints of life that we kind of want. I want to get, with this body I've got, with this creation around me, with these other bodies that I look at and I see, I want to, I want to get the most out of this. I want to get the most out of these moments. It's kind of we've got regrets about letting moments slip by. We want to live life to the full, don't we? One of the paradoxes, I think, of human existence is that the way we often pursue that freedom to live life to its fullest can enslave us. Some of the decisions that we make, the routes that we choose to live life to the fullest can enslave us. Can I read to you the lyrics of a primal scream uh, song? don't know if that text is big enough for you to see, but I'll read it out. If you're from well, my kids call it the olden days, but it's the 90s. Uh, um, and probably you, some of you might be thinking, that's not the olden days. That's just, that, didn't hap- that just happened two minutes ago. This, these lyrics, though they're actually based on a film from the 60s. Like a hell's angel, violent, sort of culty sort of story. But sort of captured the, to make the song, to make a primal scene, scream song in the 90s. Let me read out uh, the lyric. We want to be free to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. That's the, that is the lyric. That's, and all the way through, and if you're from the 90s, maybe some of the, the bass line of that song is just jumping through your head right now. We want to be free. And we want to be free to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. This is the, that's the sort of hook. Of the, of the song. See, at the start, there's, there's the ideal of freedom. This rock band, one of, a band that I quite like, Primal Scream from the Night, is they had this ideal of being free that we all have, but their pursuit of it, and this manifests in the next 20-odd years of their lives, most of them, if you read, if you read about the, the band and their stars, their route was to get loaded, which is not to acquire vast amounts of money, which maybe as it sounds, it's to get high, to get full of drugs, their drugs of choice. That was their path. And what it ended up with for them was like 20 years of slavery. So they had the ideal of being free, but the way they went about it meant that they were enslaved. And that is often, I think, that's often what can happen to us. We have this ideal of being free, but the way we go about it only um, entraps us. So you, you have the ideal of booking a holiday, you think, I need to have an awesome holiday. 
And I, I want, it's got to be the best. If I'm going to really experience the freedom of life, I've got to have a great holiday. And then you think, well, I've got, I've actually going to have to, I'm going to have to work really hard to get to that point. And you kind of become enslaved to work to get to the free thing. You've got the mobile phone, which we love. And we kind of feel like this is the thing that liberates us. And it does, in a sense, doesn't it? It really liberates us. We can know everything. We can be anywhere and talk to anyone. It is incredibly liberating. But at the same time, because perhaps of the shape of our society or just the way that we are, it enslaves us as well. Somebody can always grab. Doesn't that drive you mad? Somebody can drive me mad. Somebody can always get you. Somebody can, you are always contactable. And then you, and you, we grow ever increasingly dependent on these little devices. And we become slaves. Our pursuits of the freedoms that we want, not all the time, but often, only means we end up being slaves to stuff. What would you need to do this week? What wheels would you need to set in motion for you to live a full life? What would you need to be freed up from? Seriously, what would you have to do right now? You go and have a planning meeting tonight when you get home. Have an hour of your life thinking, how do I live a full, how do I get the best out of every moment? How do I embrace this world? What would you have to do? Is it even possible to do it? The Bible would say, I don't know how you feel about the Bible. I don't know if you're a person of faith. The Bible says that Jesus came, this is one of the statements of the Bible, Jesus came so that we might have Life to the full. That's the claim. You ever, you ever look around at other Christians and think, really? I think we might be doing this wrong. Do you know what I mean? Do you have that? Jesus came so that we might have life. And so I kind of say it thinking, this is what's there for us. I'm trying to puzzle out what it looks like. Jesus came so that we might have life and have it to the full. What would you have to do this week to set these wheels in motion? I think the story that we're going to look at today, that we're going to dig into, um, Judges 9, offers some explanation, maybe, as to why we don't experience some of those freedoms and what we might need to do in order to do it. So uh, if we can bob up the text, that'd be grand. A recap, because it's helpful. This is very much like a box set is the book of Judges. You kind of got to read the last little bit of the story to see where you're going to pick up in the next story. So previously in Judges, that kind of idea, Gideon messed it up at the end of his life, kind of went away, built his ephod, said he wasn't going to be the king. Do you remember that story from last week? Said he wasn't going to be the king, but ended up actually being the king and built this mini dynasty for himself, this huge big family, 70 or 80 people in it that all were like a royal family, even though they said they weren't. But actually, they weren't all honoring God. It was a real mishmash of people who wanted different things, Canaanites and different religions, different faiths, and it was all over the place, not very honoring to God at all. That's where we pick up the story, this dynasty that shouldn't really be a dynasty. And you see in verse 2, Abimelech, who has a desire for the throne, plays his, his family first card. Do you see that? Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all of Jeroboam's sons or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. Do you see the agenda in the story, Just in the question? Do you, see, do you see what he's after? It's not really a question, is it? Do you want to have all these people that are not like you, really? Was that going to be best for you? Or do you just want one person that's exactly the same of you? So that's, that's his leading question. 
And before you know it, he's embraced. They go for this. I mean, it's kind of preposterous, the idea. Let's just have one person instead of all these people. Wheels set in motion. Money gets given. You can see that, I think, in verse 3 and 4. Thugs are hired. Reckless scoundrels, I think, is uh, how they're described. And then it seems like a real quick jump to me. But they're butchered on a stone. Seventy of them. Seventy of them. All murdered. It's a lot like... Uh, the Bolshevik annihilation of the Romanovs. I'm not a great historian. I don't know all there is to know about that, but it's it's like it's got that sense to it. This whole family, apart from two people, get wiped out. Do you see that? I think in the in the story of the Romanov annihilation, I think there's all these myths that one or two people might get away. But in this story, Joash hides and does escape. He gets away. And he hears about Abimelech being crowned the king, and he's horrified. And he does something that seems quite unlikely, I think, to us. He runs up the mountain. He runs up the mountain, and he gives them a message. So this is, you've got to get your head a little bit around the geography to see why this is a logical thing to do. It sounds like an odd thing to do to me, to run up a mountain to try and proclaim a message to people. But I guess we live in a day and age where we use text, or we use phone, or we would put a tweet out, or something like that. In these days... This mountain range is quite famous in Bible times. um, If you go back to the end of a book called Deuteronomy, uh, Moses takes the people of Israel there, and they literally, there's a a Mount Ebal across the way, and literally they shout blessings and curses to one another, and they can hear one another across this mountain range and across this valley. So that's the kind of picture that's before us. So, I mean, whenever I've run up to the top of the mountain and I've shouted, I can't even hear the person next to me. But something about the dynamics of this mountain range means that Joash can get to the top of this mountain and he can shout out what is, I mean, you tell me what it is. Is it a riddle? Is it a parable? Is it a curse? And he shouts this out. He screams it out and all of the valley between and everywhere can hear this. Now, I'm going to read it through and you can riddle it with me. You can figure it out with me and see if you can come to a conclusion of, as to what you think it's about. So it's verse 8, we pick it up. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want me to be king over you, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let the fire, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So have a, you still with me? Have a, have a head scratch over that. Just let that ruminate through your heads for a second. I've had all week to ruminate over it and it's given me a headache and 
It wasn't until Thursday night that we really got to the bottom of it. There's, there's a couple of things that will run through your mind, I think. There is initially, I love the puzzled expressions that's coming back. It's great. It's good that we're wrestling with it. Initially, there is that sense of, it's quite ridiculous in and of itself that trees are looking to appoint a king tree. That's, that is a ridiculous notion. And some of that is at the back, I think, of what Joash is trying to get across. It's ridiculous that you, Israel, or what's left of you, Israel, is looking to appoint a king. Who are you to decide who's going to be a king? How on earth are you going to get this right? Trees aren't very good at picking kings, and they don't even need a king. Who is their king? God is your king. That's the first thing that sort of rallies through my mind anyway. It's a ridiculous notion. I think, I think we're supposed to get some of the ridicule in Joash's critique, in Joash's curse that he lays out. It's a ridiculous thing that trees would appoint a king. But second thing... And certainly we see this looking back, now that we know some of the story of Israel, some of the pictures that we get of Israel in the New Testament, that of an olive or a fig or a vine, if you read through the New Testament, that sort of language is in there all the time, because we expect Israel, God's people, to produce God's fruit. That's what the, that's what the hope is, that, that, that God will invest in these people and that good fruit will come. And Joash is saying, you've not chosen to bear good fruit. Look what you've gone for. Look what you've chosen. You've chosen a thorn bush. That's what you've chosen to be your king. So the thorn bush is associated with, not with, I mean, you look at the other trees, they're all good for stuff. There's benefit in all of them. Whether you're going to sit under the shade of it or whether you're going to pick the fruit from it, there's good in all of them. But the thorn bush doesn't have that benefit. You would... In these times, certainly, you would look at the thorn bush and say, this is good for nothing. This is just a destructive plant. This is just a chaos-causing plant. That's, that's how you would look at it. It would be good only for causing pain. And if, and like if you're an astute Bible reader, you would recognize that he references what, what it says in Genesis 2 or 3 or whatever it is about the, the curse. That's the association you get. Not, nothing good is going to come out of this. It's to do with... The curse that comes on human beings as they reject God in the beginning. And all it is actually good for, and you can see this as it comes out in the parable, is, well, it's not good. All that really happens with it is that it catches fire. People set, set it on fire and use it to warm themselves up. And it's a huge risk. So we, we, don't, we don't have what happens in Australia over here where we set something on fire and it can shoot out across, you know, hectares of land. But in Bible times, in these dry hot climate, the thorn bush on fire, just to warm you up at first, could be a catastrophe. That is the image. You've, you've chosen a king. This is what Joash screams to the people. You've chosen a king that's a thorn bush. You've had the option of choosing something else, and you've gone for a thorn bush. And the consequences for you, if you invest in this, could be catastrophic. If you choose to live mastered by something that is hate-fueled and destructive, you head towards an ultimate tragic end. And you'll notice at the end of the story there, verse 21, Joshua, Joash rather, legs it. He clears off and he goes to hide. That's the end of the story. What happens next? So I'm going to try and truncate this. I'm going to try and make this really small. because it's. A, I mean, go away and read it for yourselves if you want, but it's this huge, long narrative, and we don't have time to explain all of the story. Essentially, what happens, another prickly character comes along, 
He's called Gal, son of Ebed. He moves in. Tensions between these two people escalate. As often happens with prickly characters, as often happens with ego-led characters. That's the storyline you've got here. Gal and Abimelech, ego-driven guys. Very power-hungry guys. And tensions escalate and fights occur. Armies are amassed very quickly. People don't get on and it just the violence just increases from one battle to the next, to the next, to the next. Like this thirst and this fuel for power seems to take hold of both of these chaps. They raise armies and as Joash prophesied, suggested, screamed from the top of the mountains, the curse comes upon all these people. The story ends with Abimelech uh, sort of fueled by anger, legging it to, to take another city because he just, he can't, this quench for glory just is, well, his thirst for glory is just not quenched. And he runs up towards a tower. This is how the sort of, sort of story culminates. And everybody flees up this tower. And, and uh, Abimelech looks at it, and he, like everything else he's looked at in the past, he's thought, well, if I just want it bad enough, if I just am angry enough, we can take this. And he runs towards the tower, and there's a woman at the top who sees him coming and drops a millstone on his head, and it smashes up against his head, and he lies there flat on the floor. And to try and save some of his honor, he screams to his armor bearer, he says, just, would you just kill me because I don't want to be killed by a woman different times. The, humil- the humiliation, as we've seen throughout Judges, of the fact that a woman, certainly in these times, has taken his own life. And this story ends, so it starts, starts with this, tr- this horror of a family getting wiped out on one stone. Storytellers clear to tell us this, and it ends. And along the way, hundreds of people have died, maybe thousands of people have died, and it ends on another stone on somebody's head. It's, it's a horror story. It's a grim tragedy. And Joash's curse hangs over all of it. He says, if you choose this, if this is, if this is what you choose, then this is what will happen. And this is what happens. And you sort of hear that story and what you think, what you think to yourselves is this, is, this is a long way from me. I don't, I don't know what I can learn from this, really. I don't have, I don't feel like I'm going to, I don't feel close to running out and killing anybody. I don't feel like the, the urge to pick up a blade. I don't, I don't connect this bloody mess with my Christian life or even rocking up at church or anything like that. And I was, where I thought we were heading in the week was that I would draw out some principles. But I watched two films in the week which totally changed. I, I mean, I, th- I thought, we're not connected to this. This is not a reality for us. I watched two films that really changed my mind, that, sh- that, that showed me that I think, actually, this, this curse is a real and present curse for all of us. And not just in a principled way, in a, in a literal, physical way. So, two film recommendations for you. Um, so, last week was a half-term week. Watch one chance to go to the cinema, one chance to have a stay up late night, watch a film with a wife. Both awesome films, uh, both Oscar-nominated films, both h- hard watches, but really recommended. First one is a film called Jojo Rabbit. So it's I'm looking around. I don't, I don't think anyone, if anyone's been to see it, it's absolutely phenomenal story. It's just a brilliant story. It's really a, well, I'm going to sort of half describe it now, and you're going to wince. Okay, so it's about a nice Nazi. 
Yeah, it's about a nice Nazi. He's about a 10-year-old Nazi. And the way that the film's told, you totally warm to him. You totally embrace him. And he hides, or his mum hides. I'll not give all the film away because you should, you should go and see it. He hides a Jewish girl in, his, um, in the loft. And she's not nice. It's really weird because you normally, it's normally always the other way about. And you don't like the Nazis. You do, you do like the Jew hiding in the cupboard. But that's not this, the, the story doesn't get you down that line. And, it, and it, as you warm to the Nazis, you see, or you warm to this Nazi, not the Nazis. You warm to this little boy who's in that Nazi world. <laughs> Very careful. This is recorded. Yeah, uh, that, just to clarify, you don't warm to the Nazis, you warm to the Nazi in this film. But as you warm to the Nazi in this film, you see the whole backstory through a different light. It just was illuminated to me. I couldn't believe. So I couldn't believe. And it, it, it's so like the Abimelech story. It's not true. It's just so like the Abimelech story. It's not true. Initially, so you've got a spiky leader, to say the least. You've got the thorn. Adolf, you've got him there very clearly. He plays the family card, the same card that Abimelech plays. You want somebody else to rule over you when you can have people like me? He plays that card, the Aryan card. And everybody goes, or people in their thousands, maybe even millions goes, yeah, all right. Yeah, we'll do that. This film footage, I could not believe the masses of people who went along with some of the garbage that Hitler was coming out with and just went, yeah, okay, these are the times we're living in. These are the circumstances. And just went, yeah, okay. And very quickly, as you see in the film, which I recommend, violence on all fronts for everybody. Just, I mean, is that, is that a fair description of World War II? Just like a curse. Just like death everywhere. Brutal, horrible. And the film ends with you appreciating that. There's all these... Hitler youth running out to defend the last bits of Germany. And you see these kids running out. And yes, you do. You do have sympathy for them. You think, what on earth? What on earth are we doing with this world when this is a reality? When we've been swept along by these lies. All because we've said, let's have a bad master. And you'd be happy enough to say, oh, that's just, that's just for a certain amount of time. That was just World War II and that. Doesn't ever happened. As I kind of skimmed through my history books, I realized that we've barely ever, ever had a period in human history where we've not really been at war. And the second film I watched was a film called For Sama, which is on film four at the moment. If you get a chance later on tonight or tomorrow or in the week, just amazing documentary about life in Aleppo for the last 10 years. So I watched this film thinking, I can't believe I've brought my kids up in such peace. And then we moan about our country and about the government and everything else. I can't believe I've brought my kids up in this peaceful world without even a thought for what's been going on in Syria all this time. So the film's mostly shot through a mobile phone. And all you see is tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And it's the same story again. A thorny, prickly leader driven by ego, people following them, and there is the curse. The parable of Joash, in a literal way, I would say, has rung true for our world pretty much since he said it. But there is principles. Our lives don't only get ruined in overt big ways. Not all bad masters have got mustaches. Not all life tragedy is blood-soaked, is it? There are other masters in our lives that can ruin us. Like ruin us to the extent that we've seen in the story of Abimelech. Ruin us 
beyond all repair. Ruin us to others. Ruin the people around us. So mine is, and the re- I guess this is when you're the preacher, this is where you go. Mine will be pride. I'm sure it's a Gibson genetic trait that we are proud. Pride and anger and hate. When that, when that becomes a master. So notice what happens to Abimelech. So, so initially you think, well, sure, I'm not that guilty of any of this stuff. So maybe I don't need to listen to the principal bit. I'll be moved by the big stories around the world, but I don't need to listen to the principal bit. Think about what happened to Abimelech. He, he's stirred by his pride to fight. And the pride that's in him causes him to keep going on fighting. And that is, that is his formula for success at life. I'm going to hold the grudge. And I'm going to hold it so tightly and so firmly, and it's going to be my motivation and my fuel, and eventually I'll win. That's, that's his strategy for life, Abimelech. And look what happens to him. It comes apart all around his ears. Now, I, I reckon, so the proud person over here, I see how that happens so... so this is just one example of a master in our lives that can destroy us. I see how that can happen so easily, how pride can just grab you so easily. And what happens, somebody wrongs you, and you do exactly what Abimelech does, or I do exactly what Abimelech does. I hold the grudge, and I think in some way that's, that's me winning, or that'll lead to me winning. So I'll, I'll hold the grudge, and I'll think, oh, it's moral high ground. I'll win in the end. Or I'll hold the grudge because it'll be fuel for my fire next time, so I'll be ready to give them it back next time, that sort of thing. And I think that, that's all right. A little bit of that's all right. Because you, you walk down the street, somebody can annoy you. That can happen. But when it becomes your, when this stuff, this is just pride, when that becomes a master in your life, when it's, when it's not just one or two people that annoy you, for example, but half the people you meet annoy you a little bit and you've got a grudge against them. Or a BMW cuts you up on the road and you dislike everybody that drives BMWs. That can happen, can't it? Or... You've got a grudge on somebody from way back, 20 years back in your life, and you can't let it go, and it embitters you, and it ruins you a bit. When it, one example, pride, when that masters you, it, it doesn't just lead to you, it, it, it can lead to the kind of turmoil that we see at the end of the story of Abimelech. It can be ruinous, because I don't know. So personally, I know that I've, I'm, I get there every now and again, or I've been there every now and again, a bit ruined by pride. And you become a toxic person. You become an ugly person. And you bring other people down with you. It's a mess. It's a tragedy. And that's just pride. There's no bloodshed, literal bloodshed. But it's a curse. In the society that we live in, in the age that we live in, our the stream of life that we're absorbed by throws at us, I think, so many bad masters. Wealth, power, notoriety, fame, you name it. There are tons of bad masters. There are loads of ways that our society becomes intoxicated and then becomes toxic because we just lose ourselves to these bad masters. So this is the point in the story where it's really helpful. So some, somebody said to me, or people increasingly said to me, when you read your Bible, you need to read the Old Testament and the New Testament. You need to read all of it to make sense of it. And this is one of those moments where understanding this curse, understanding the curses in our lives, it's really helpful. 
to have that sort of approach. Jesus goes to a place, and you would. So it's in it's in John chapter four. Um, this account. Um, Jesus visits a place. It's Samaria, but it's the same place as this whole backstory has just happened. It's the same place, Sychar, Gerizim. It's what we call the West Bank nowadays. And you might look at this place. I think you would look at this place even now, parts of Israel, parts of Palestine, and you would say the curse of Joash rings really true. Especially, especially there, it's a cursed place. Jesus, in this story, meets a woman, the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And you would say of this woman, I think, well, there are two details. I would say she's, she's cursed. She's carried on. I don't know how many hundreds of years later, she still falls under the curse. There's, there's two details that we get in this text, and we won't read it out for the sake of time. But first bit of text, but first bit of detail we see is in verse 5. She's got five husbands and the boyfriend. Remember that conversation with Jesus? Five, she's, ha- she's had five husbands and a boyfriend. She's been mastered in this day and age, in these times, by the need to survive via relationship, via her body, or whatever else it is. That's the first detail that we get. She's, in this culture and in this time, she's, and you can, we can have, I think, sympathy for her. Because they are different times. Horrifically unfair towards women. And she is trying to get by. But she's had five different husbands. And the person that she, she's with now is not even her husband. So this is the first thing. She's mastered by relationships. They've got a hold over her. And she's, she's using them to survive. That's the first thing we see. Second thing we see is that she's mastered a little bit by hate. See what she says again? I think this is verse 4. She's a Samaritan that has nothing to do with Jews. That's what she says. So there's, there's this conflict that has remained between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so one of the first things she says, how can you offer me a drink? That's what it says there in verse 4. How can you ask me for a drink? Samaritans have got nothing to do with Jews. So there's these two the Bible lets us know two little bits of information about her life. Two ways, I would say, in which she's mastered. Two ways in which you might say she's cursed. And Jesus says to her, I'm going to do two things for you. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make it so you're never going to thirst again. I'm going to make it so you never need a drink again. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make it so your life is not governed and mastered by hate. That's what he says. I'm going to make it so... You don't need to experience your faith, essentially what she's saying, through the lens of hatred towards Jews. She associates her religious practice and her religious belief just towards her nation and her people, and there's hatred for other people. Jesus says to her, I'm going to do two things for you. I'm going to make it so you don't need to thirst for a relationship again, and I'm going to make it so that your faith life is not built on hate from here on in. I guess you're wondering at the side of this world, what on earth kind of drink Jesus is going to pull out? of this well. And it's a really cool story. I think it's a really cool story because it doesn't get resolved in the, in the immediacy. We're just all left hanging, as often happens with the stories of Jesus. Jesus. She sort of recognizes that Jesus is amazing, and he speaks with great wisdom and great insight, and there's something miraculous and awesome about him, and then Jesus just walks off. And we're left, in John 4 anyway, hanging on the detail of the rest of this story. This woman's left to 
figure it out. We don't know whether she goes back and picks up with guy number six and marries him or even goes on to marry guy number seven. We're not left knowing. But we do get to know what Jesus does with his promises. See, in the aftermath of this event, Jesus, this man she's been moved by and interested in, goes off, offers himself up as a sacrifice, lives and dies a beautiful life, is hung on a cross so that, and this is the key, so that everybody would know the love of God. That's what happens. So that everybody would know the love of God. So you would look at this man and you would see this sacrifice. This is the story of the cross. You would look at that and in seeing that, in seeing this perfect man, in seeing this perfect sacrifice, you would know this Yahweh, this great God that everyone's trying to figure out, certainly in these times, you would know personally his love. The amazing nature of his love, the all-encompassing nature of his love. One of the first places that the disciples go back to preach is Samaria. So after Jesus dies and rose again, the disciples go back to preach. And if you read about it in Acts, you'll see that people in their thousands turn to faith. So this woman's hearing this story about this man that she's met. Considering this act of love, she now knows. Now, we all, I think, like her, could look back at our own lives and see lots of the detail of the story of Abimelech in our lives. See how we might not be the instigator that Abimelech was or Adolf Hitler was or anything like that, but we can see different times as how we've been carried along with that narrative, how we've been ruled by different masters that don't really deserve, if, if we knew absolutely everything about our lives, that don't really deserve a good outcome. And at the end of Abimelech's story, there is a guy who gets to experience or gets the consequences of, that, of, of a life cursed. He gets a, he gets a millstone around his head. And there's a sense in which if we're left to our own devices, as people, I would say, we're all heading in that kind of direction, believe it or not. The beauty of the story of the cross, of the gospel is, even though we live that life, with that outcome somewhere. The end of our story, or the important juncture of our story, is not that we get to experience all the curse that's coming. The end of our story, it's not us with a millstone on our neck, it's Jesus on a cross, bleeding out. See what happens in the story? That curse that I would say, hopefully I've argued fairly well, flows through most of our lives. It all ended up centered on him. He took it all, all of the curse. He became the curse. So that woman, this woman of the well, hears about, hears about this story, has this recognition, oh yes, that's what happened for me, and now knows the love of God, the love of God for herself through this story. This God is going to love me and protect me. This is the almighty God. This is the God of great comfort. This is the God who threw stars into space. This is the God who made everything. This is the God who holds everything in his hands. I know him, and I know now because I've seen this story and seen the story of the curse, I know that he loves me. How can I go back thinking that winning at life 
or feeling the need to win at life is found by using my body for relationships or hating people that aren't quite like me. I think this is what happens when you know the love of God. When you really know the love of God. Not that we're not living in a world soaked in this stuff, but that when we know, if we know that love, if, we, if, if that's real for us, if we see that in the story of the cross and we experience God properly, that starts to dissipate for us. What is it to live? What is it to live a, a life full? What would it mean to us to live a full, free life? How do we experience that right now? There is a the wisdom, I guess, that exists on our earth, kind of pirate wisdom, isn't it? Take what you can, give nothing back. Grab as much as you can. Grab, as, grab whatever's going. Jesus came. His wisdom was travel light. Travel as light as you can and see how I will fill you up. I think for us to live free, full lives, genuinely, and I think it's possible, it's about, in knowing Christ, what we're able to let go What destructive things in our lives, like my pride and the rest of it, what destructive things we are able to let go of? What, it, what would it be for you this week to experience the joy that that cross brings? What would you need to let go? What drug, what grudges, what hate, what pride? I would say look at the cross and feel your hands loosen on their grip as you recognize what Jesus has done for you and for us.